It's Midday Magazine for Thursday, June 22nd, and I'm Shelby Herbert. Southeast Alaska trollers will now have a summer season for king salmon, after all. Yesterday morning, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ordered a stay of an earlier lower court ruling that would have closed the fishery indefinitely. Robert Wolsey reports in Sitka. Alaska Trollers Association President Matt Donahoe was parked in his car when the email came through. He is rarely at a loss for words, but this news left him feeling elated and, for a moment, speechless. Over the moon, but I'm so in, in shock and shaky that, uh, you know, just emotionally that I, I, you know, I I don't know what to think. I mean, I do know what to think. It's it's great news. Back in May, the U.S. District Court of Western Washington had ruled in favor of an environmental group seeking to halt commercial trolling for king salmon in southeast. The Wild Fish Conservancy argued that the National Marine Fisheries Service had failed to comply with the Endangered Species Act in allowing the fishery and that a population of about 72 southern resident killer whales were suffering as a result. The lower court vacated the language authorizing trolling, effectively blocking the season, which begins on July 1st. The National Marine Fisheries Service, the state of Alaska, and the Trollers Association asked the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for a stay of that ruling no later than June 23rd. That the decision came two days early was almost as surprising as the outcome. We were fairly certain that we were going to have a decision on the motion of the stay. But what that decision was going to be, we didn't know. A call to the Wild Fish Conservancy has not yet been returned. Hundreds of pages of motions have been filed in the federal courts since the Wild Fish Conservancy first gave notice that it intended to sue the National Marine Fisheries Service in late 2019. The Ninth Circuit's stay order, however, is only five pages and among the most concise legal language of the entire case, stating... A flawed agency rule does not need to be vacated on remand and instead may be left in place when equity demands. This is legalese for don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Having the National Marine Fisheries Service fix its language has been the crux of this case since it was filed rather than identifying any specific harm from a relatively small fishery on the welfare of killer whales 800 miles away. It just took three years for the courts to spell it out. That language has been there in front of us all along. Deborah Lyons represents commercial fisheries on the northern panel of the Pacific Salmon Commission. That just because the ruling was flawed doesn't mean the fishery absolutely must be closed. Although that has been like typical court procedure that the permit has to go away if the document is flawed. But it clearly left room to make an argument that, you know, if there are extenuating circumstances, you don't just close a fishery reflexively. Those extenuating circumstances involve a 40% loss in income for the roughly 800 permit holders who would put out their hooks on July 1st. The total harvest for commercial trollers this season is 149,000 kings, not a large take compared to other Alaska salmon fisheries like Bristol Bay Sockeye, but the kings are incredibly valuable and central to the Southeast Alaska identity and lifestyle for over a century. Lyons believes salmon trollers, who are sometimes confused with trawlers, an altogether different kind of industry, 
were slow to tell this story. And I think a lot of people just assumed, well, you're guilty. You're catching fish the whales need. You, you should go out of work. You know, it was that simple in, in people's minds. They did not understand the tiny amount of fish that we were catching. You know, the amount of scrutiny we're under. And we made not a great case defending ourselves on that front. There was consistent support for trollers across the region as the case progressed. Alaska's congressional delegation weighed in with an amicus brief. And just last week, so did the Central Council of Klingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. They're our first line, said Lyons. That's our food source in rural communities. Alaska Department of Fish and Game Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang had praise for the State Department of Law, but he also believes that it took a group effort to win the stay. I'm incredibly proud of the coalition that gathered together to get people in line and supportive of, of, of the appeal, and I'm certainly happy that Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with us. Winning the stay doesn't necessarily mean winning the appeal. There is still much work to be done both at the agency level and in the courts. In the meantime, Vincent Lang says trollers can return to their work. We will open the fishery in July 1st. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Juneau school district leaders are grappling with a budget deficit just weeks before their budget is due to the state, following Mike Governor Mike Dunleavy's vetoes. On Monday, Dunleavy voted half a, of a one-time increase in public education funding approved by the Alaska legislature. Juno Superintendent Bridget Weiss says it's disheartening. To constantly be hitting a wall around adequate and timely and sustained funding is, is really frustrating and it's exhausting. Juneau School District leaders built a budget around an an assumed $430 increase in per-student funding. That increase, along with a final round of pandemic aid, allowed the district to avoid increasing class sizes next school year. The veto leaves the district with a $758,000 shortfall. Weiss says there isn't enough in the district's savings to fill that deficit. Even if we said we're going to use every penny of fund balance that we have so that we don't have to make any further cuts, which isn't something that you want to do because obviously that's your buffer um, when, you're built, when your budget is built on a lot of, of projections, uh, we still wouldn't quite have enough. The legislature needs 45 out of 60 votes to override a veto from the governor. Juno Senator Jesse Keel says the Senate likely has more support for a veto than the House does. I think an override is uh, is very difficult, but it is possible. And, and I think what it takes is education advocates around the state calling their legislators saying, this is not okay. This is hurting Alaska's future, Alaska's economy, Alaska's kids. In the meantime, Juno's school board has less than a month to decide what to cut. The Juneau Assembly has already allocated funding beyond the cap set by the state. The district's budget is due to the State Department of Education on July 15th. Alongside Governor Mike Dunleavy's vetoes to education funding, Alaska schools are about to find out how much money they will receive from the federal government for school meals this year. As schools look ahead at their 2024 budgets this month, many are under pressure because of steep inflation in the price of food. KFSK's Thomas Copeland reports. It's a Friday in June, but the Petersburg Elementary School's cafeteria is still teeming with kids. 
Lunch lady Katie Brantuis knows them all by name. Hi, Natalie. Do you want teriyaki chicken or sweet chili chicken? Cherry, cherry chicken. And beside the terry chicken, there's a full salad bar too. From this end, we've got lettuce, uh, bean salad, fresh carrots. Now, in the summertime, corn. the federal government covers this food for any child who wants it. But that's not the case in the school year. When the semester starts back up this fall, Alaska schools have access to less funding for school meals, and that means they will have to face the full force of inflation. Carly Johnson McIntosh is in charge of the meals at Petersburg schools. She's watched the cost of her food orders skyrocket. So if you look at chicken, that has doubled in price compared to what you were able to get it in 2020 or 2021. According to the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the price of food in schools has shot up this year by a chart-topping 294%. In 2010, when I started, a weekly grocery bill was about $2,000. Now, one week's worth of groceries is about $5,000. But the biggest part of that is over the past two years. How school meals are paid for during the semester gets pretty complicated. Basically, the federal government reimburses Alaska schools for many of the meals they serve, but not all of them. Depending on household income, some kids are eligible for free meals. Some are eligible for reduced meals and some pay full price. In Petersburg, more than 60% of students are eligible for free or reduced meals. That's a little under the statewide average of three quarters. In the last year, schools have been able to claw back between six and seven dollars for each free or reduced meal. But the problem is that reimbursement rate just hasn't kept up with soaring food bills. And that leaves schools with two options. The first is to get thrifty, like Johnson McIntosh in Petersburg. We try to do buy bulk orders to help um, reduce the, the cost. And then we plan menus so that if we have any leftovers of one day, we can easily use it in another thing without having any waste or overhead and leftover product. The second option is to increase the prices for the students who do pay. And that's exactly what the Petersburg School District plans to do. They'll be proposing a 25 cent increase to the standard meal charge at the next school board meeting in August. It might not seem like much, but five days a week for a few children and their quarters start to add up. But even if they do both of those two things, many Alaska schools will still feel the pinch. Trevor Bridgewater is the president of the Alaska School Nutrition Association. It's definitely a fact that schools are caught between the rising costs of food and a stagnant uh, reimbursement rate. And we are constantly behind the curve on how to fund our programs. And Bridgewater says Alaska schools face an additional problem. Unlike other states, the state of Alaska does not provide uh, any additional reimbursement monies to uh, school nutrition programs in Alaska. The federal reimbursement rates for 2024 are expected any day now. Bridgewater says that if the rate increase isn't enough, schools may have to search for cutbacks, maybe some big ones. Literally, whether or not certain schools can afford to continue serving meals in schools. The other option is to look at uh, food products that cost less, and food products that cost less are usually of lesser quality. And back in Petersburg, cutbacks of any kind could face stiff resistance from already picky cafeteria customers. I don't like it when they serve banana bread. I don't like spaghetti. I don't like the carrot very much. Why not? I don't know. Well, 72 kids fed today. That just leaves the washing up. 
For KFSK, I'm Thomas Copeland. The United States military left many contaminated areas around Unalaska when they pulled out after World War II, like oil tanks and chemicals that polluted streams and soils. Now, the local tribe is teaming up with scientists from universities in Arizona, Nevada, and Alaska to address the contamination. Sophia stewart Razi reports from Unalaska. Okay, two, four, six, eight, ten. That's it. Frank Von Hippel is collecting fish that are one to two years old in Unalaska Lake. We got a bunch that's fine. They're all stickleback. We can take hundreds of stickleback. Jen Schmidt is here too, also collecting specimens. Should I tell them they need a lot and a lot of eggs? No, we're going to not do that. They're both university scientists. Schmidt is with the University of Alaska, and Von Hippel is with the University of Arizona. And they're conducting research on fish from streams that could be environmentally polluted, which could in turn make people unhealthy if the fish are eaten regularly. The research is part of a four-year project aimed at cleaning up contamination left behind from World War II sites near Unalaska. The Army Corps of Engineers has spent years cleaning up formerly used defense sites, or FUDs, around the island, and they're still working on cleaning up dozens of sites that are left behind. FUDs may have persistent organic pollutants and toxic metals like mercury and arsenic. They're all harmful, especially if consumed at high levels. The Kowalunkin tribe of Unalaska is also involved in the cleanup efforts. They've teamed up with the National Science Foundation and university scientists who are collecting fish and soil samples in areas that community members use for subsistence fish and berries, like around Morris Cove, Humpy Cove, and Summer Bay Lake. Elise Contreras is the environmental remediation manager for the Q tribe. She says this data collection could lead to changes of livelihood. We want people to be empowered to participate in their subsistence activities and to be able to do whatever recreation and feel safe and comfortable eating, fishing, hunting in these areas without concern of contaminants from the past. Vaughn Hippel presented his work to Unalaskans a couple times throughout his week-long stay on the island. He says this research project in Alaska can be a model for communities who are currently dealing with FUD sites contaminating subsistence foods. It's important that it's a community-engaged project, and as a community-engaged project, the community is guiding where the sampling should take place and what should be done about any problems that are encountered during the sampling. Collected soils and fish were packaged at the tribe's warehouse and flown with the scientists back to their labs in Anchorage, Nevada, and Arizona. Once the results are finalized, they'll be shared with the tribe and presented to the community. In Unalaska, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert. Coming up next, local and marine weather, followed by birthdays and community announcements.